Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. And today I'd like to talk to you about the witnesses found in John 5. We're going to begin with a rather lengthy reading from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. There the Bible tells us, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lamed, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. This event took place about a year into the Lord's public ministry. Very early in his ministry, Jesus had gone to Jerusalem, and while there, he had cleansed the temple. We read about that in John chapter 2. From Jerusalem, the Lord had gone to Galilee, and the early part of his work in Galilee lasted about a year. Much work had been done, but it had been accompanied by a growing tide of controversy among the Jewish leaders. Now, as Jesus goes once again to Jerusalem, probably for the Feast of the Passover, we will see the bitterness and hatred toward the Lord by the Jewish leaders gaining momentum and taking on a much more sinister and deadly aspect. This wonderful miracle took place at the Pool of Bethesda, a spring-fed pool of water located southeast of the temple area. 
We should mention that in verse 4, where it speaks of the angel going down into the water and stirring it up, none of the earliest or the best manuscripts contain that statement. It is thought by many to have been an insertion by some scribe to explain the belief of the people. The fact that the water was troubled is attributable to the siphon spring that fed the pool. What a scene it must have been, with a great number of sick and crippled people lying about in the five porches that surrounded the pool of Bethesda. The question comes to mind, why did Jesus choose this particular individual from among all the sick and the lame? There are a few indications given in the account. One is that this man appears to have been a most hopeless case, and his healing would be a powerful illustration of the power of Jesus. Secondly, the man's state was made all the more pitiful by the fact that he was alone and constantly pushed aside by others as he attempted to make his way to the water. Thirdly, this man had been in his condition for 38 years, and the account clearly shows that Jesus knew that this man had been this way for a very long time. Thus, we can certainly say that the compassion and sympathy of Jesus enters into the picture as well. There is something else that is particularly interesting about this special case. In the healings that had taken place in the Lord's ministry up to this time, the sick and the lame came to him seeking help. In this case, Jesus approached the man who did not know him and had made no effort to seek his help. Jesus came into the world to lead men to faith in him that would bring about their eternal salvation. That was the point of the miracles that Jesus performed. The love of Jesus moved him to pity the man both in his physical ailments and in his spiritual suffering. The truth is that Jesus used his miracles to bring faith as well as health. The miracles gave the opportunity to stir faith and confirm faith. An important point is made by this. The miracles of Jesus were faith-producing, not faith-dependent. Jesus had simply asked the man, do you want to be made well? The man's response was, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. How thrilling it must have been for this man, suffering for 38 years, to hear the words, rise, take up your bed and walk, and immediately the man was made well. What a contrast there is between the miracles of Jesus and the so-called miracles of the religious charlatans of today. It happened immediately and it happened completely. There were no failures, no charges that the man's faith was not strong enough. The healing depended upon the one doing the healing, not the one being healed. This man did not even know who Jesus was. Later, when the man was being persecuted by the Jewish leaders for carrying his bed on the Sabbath day, Jesus revealed himself to him more completely. He had made his body whole. Now Jesus sought to give him the more needed spiritual health as well. Finding him in the temple, Jesus told him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man went out and told the Jews that it had been Jesus who had made him whole. This second visit of Jesus to Jerusalem created great controversy. The manner in which this miracle was worked aroused heated discussion. Why did Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath day, knowing that it would bring such bitter criticism against him? 
He made a deliberate choice in the matter as to the man and the time. Jesus approached the man. He told him to take up his bed and walk, even though he knew that the sight of a person carrying such a burden through the Sabbath day crowds would create controversy. I find it fascinating that in Galilee, where there had been such intense excitement about Jesus that it threatened to get out of hand, the Lord told a leper he had healed to tell no one. But now here in Jerusalem, a city so filled with hostility toward Jesus that even those who believed in him did so privately for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus boldly threw down the gauntlet, so to speak, by sending this man right through the midst of the people on the Sabbath day carrying his bed. On that visit to Jerusalem about a year earlier, Jesus had boldly cleansed the temple of the worldly merchandising and proclaiming by his actions that he which which he later said, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than in the temple. That's in Matthew 12 and verse 6. Now the Lord denounced the false leadership of the Pharisees, who by their traditions had nullified the word of God. He deliberately sent that lame man walking through the crowds, carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. By so doing, he was declaring to the nation and its leaders, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's Matthew chapter 12 and verse 8. When the Jewish leaders were informed that it had been Jesus who had made the lame man well, we see that their attitude turned so very ugly. We are told in verse 16, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So now the stage was set for a remarkable discourse from Jesus. It arose in defense against the charge that he was a Sabbath breaker, a charge, by the way, that was punishable by death, according to Leviticus 23, 29 through 30, and Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 36. However, it very quickly moved to the much larger claim that he was the Son of God and all that that involved. We'll take the time now to read verses 17 through 30. It tells us, But Jesus answered them, saying, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son, and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to who he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, 
and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. The fundamental proposition of Jesus' defense is found in verse 17. He said, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. He didn't defend his actions by attacking the ridiculous traditions of the Jews concerning the Sabbath, traditions that they had allowed to supersede the scriptures. No, the Lord went right to the heart of the matter. He based his actions upon his unity and equality with God. The things that Jesus did were those things that God does. He was declaring his own authority over the Sabbath, as absolute as God himself. The Jewish leaders were able to see instantly and clearly what so many others had failed to see. The declarations of Jesus at this time were implicit and explicit claims of deity. He did make it clear that at that time he was subject to the Father, but at the same time he made it clear that he was his very Son and acting in conjunction with him. If they did not honor Jesus, they were not honoring his Father who had sent him. How they reacted to Jesus would determine what their fate would be in judgment. It is absolutely no different for us today. If we fail to honor Jesus through our obedience to his word, we fail to honor the Father who sent him. How we react to Jesus will determine what our fate will be in judgment. This now brings us to the last part of the chapter that I want to read, verses 31 through 47. Jesus continued on and said, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice nor at any time seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I guess that we could say the first witness Jesus presented was himself because he did bear witness of himself. Over in John 8 and verse 18, Jesus said, I am the one who bear witness of myself and the Father who sent me bear witness of me. However, it is important to realize that that witness was in conjunction with the Father. We know that the law of Moses required testimony from more source than one for a thing to be established as valid. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15 stated that by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. So, Jesus presented more witnesses. He mentioned John, then that would be John the Baptist. Some of those present at that one time placed great store on what John had to say. As a matter of fact, Jesus said they were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. What did John have to say about Jesus? Well, looking at John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, we read, The next day John saw Jesus coming out toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. His next witness was even greater than John. It was the miracles that Jesus performed. It was the evidence of the direct work of God through him. Even the great Jewish leader Nicodemus had understood this to be true when he said to Jesus in John chapter 3 and verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They could not deny that Jesus worked miracles. Indeed, it was a miracle that had prompted this exchange between them. In the fourth place, we could also say that the next witness to be found was the Father himself. His testimony was seen in the ability of Jesus to do these mighty works. And then there were the scriptures, with specific emphasis on the writings of Moses. Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The testimony of the Old Testament from the law, through the prophets and the wisdom literature, was clear and powerful. In fact, his coming was the story of the Old Testament, but they would not believe. Jesus ended with the assertion that they did not really believe the writings of Moses. Not really. They only studied and considered those passages which suited their own interests. The larger vision of the purpose and design of Scripture had been lost in their ridiculous traditions which they had created. Let's make sure we never make the same mistake. The Bible puts before us the person and work of the Savior and His will for us. We must always remember that it is our entire reason for living in this world to believe in Him, to trust Him, to love Him, to honor Him, and to loyally serve Him. If we ever take our eye off of this object, 
And with all the things that happen in the world and in the church, we can do that. Then we, like they, will have lost the larger vision of Scripture and will cease to know the fellowship of the glorious Son of God. The Witnesses of Jesus. Words to think about. Thanks for listening.